Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 7, The Prophets, the PH Prophets. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. As Amos and Hosea have predicted, things begin to unravel up in Israel. Jeroboam II dies, and his son Zechariah becomes king, for about six months, that is, at which point he's assassinated out in broad public daylight by a fellow by the name of Shalom. The only background information revealed about Shalom, other than his murder of Zechariah, is the fact that he's part of a conspiracy. Since conspiracy is part of every assassination, this is not news. Read all about it in 2 Kings 15. This makes Zechariah the fourth and last of Yehu's line to sit on Israel's throne, which, it turns out, is something we'd forecast to Yehu in our mixed review of his work. Because he'd done away with Baal in the north, his line would get to reign a while. Because his reform was incomplete and he didn't return fully to me, there would only be four generations of his line on the throne. 2 Kings 10.28 The killer Shalom is only king for six months himself when Menachem, a brutal chap from about ten miles east of Samaria, returns the fatal favor to Shalom and takes the life and throne from him. When Shalom's hometown of Tifsa resists Menachem's takeover, his brutality equals the absolute worst of the neighbors as he decimates the town. 2 Kings 15.16 includes the heartbreaking detail we cannot bring ourselves to mention here. It is the same practice for which we shall judge the Ammonites in Amos 1.13. Not surprisingly, no one challenges Menachem during his subsequent ten-year reign a reign which keeps Israel's downward spiral firmly on course. 2 Kings 15.17 When Assyria threatens to invade, Menachem increases the amount of tribute being paid to them to an outrageous amount of money and enacts a punishing wealth tax of 50 silver shekels per person to finance it all. How can this possibly end well? Menachem's son, Pekahiah, is king for only two years when he is killed in a military coup orchestrated by an army commander, Pekah, who doesn't seem to be very keen on Israel's alliance with Assyria. Neither are we, obviously, but here is yet another case of someone taking matters entirely into their own hands without turning to us for any kind of guidance or assistance. Pekah's not wresting control for himself because we have called him to set things aright, like Yehu most recently. Pekah's doing this all on his own. It is this very self-reliance and reliance on one's own clever ability to make alliances with strong neighbors that is the core of Israel's and your issues. Obviously, the military alliance part only applies now to a couple of you, but office politics covers more, 
and the general I've-got-this attitude that excludes me from the conversation is universal among you. Since they are trusting in military might, their own and their neighbors, instead of in me, that military trust is what will provide their undoing. They are living by the sword, and they shall die by it, for Assyria is not known for its clemency. Menachem kept Assyria at bay by sending them large amounts of silver in tribute. It's safe to assume Menachem's son did this as well during his brief reign, prompting Pekah's coup. Shopkeepers in Palermo call this kind of payment the pizzo. Others call it a protection fee. We call it extortion. You could say that this tribute functions as a very high tax that keeps the peace treaty intact, but the other, darker flavors are in there. Pekah, however, doesn't pay the pizzo. He reigns in Israel twenty years without any record in either Tom or Mesopotamian archaeology of his ever sending so much as a basket of kumquats to Assyria, much less the literal king's ransom sent by his predecessor. Let us underscore that Pekah doesn't undertake this course because he's trusting in me instead of the neighbor king. Since I have been relegated to the wings in Israel's life, the unfolding drama in the north is solely in the hands of Pekah, who may have been a fine military man capable of overthrowing the local king, but he is not much of a politician and he has dealt himself into a very high-stakes game with a daunting adversary while dealing me out of the equation entirely. It is during this reign of Pekah in the north, during those twenty years before the consequences hit the fan at the end of his reign, which, of course, we'll get to, two years into it, in fact, at Second Kings 15.32, that King Uzziah of Judah dies and his son Jotham begins to reign on his own. And though Jotham does a pretty good job as king, like his father, he also keeps the convenient store worship sites up and running. Judah's been nowhere near as completely and consistently rebellious as Israel, but they've not managed to come close to fully getting on the way either, and things are going to get much, much worse. And so now is the moment we decide to send Judah her own first long-term lecturing prophet. We began this phase of our campaign in Israel with Amos. We begin the next stage in our outreach to Judah with, drumroll please, Isaiah, who, like Amos, is exact in dating the outset of his career. Isaiah's ministry launches in the year King Uzziah died. Isaiah 6, 1. Because of the swirl of interconnectedness between Israel and Judah, Isaiah's message includes and outlines the fate of all parts of the family, the whole twelve tribes. He'll often use Israel to refer to the entire nation. He's firmly stationed in Jerusalem, though, and has the ear of Judah's kings. In terms of his lecture's location in the owner's manual, Isaiah begins his category in whichever form your manual takes. If you're reading a Hebrew owner's manual, Isaiah launches the latter prophets in the Tanakh. 
If you've got a double testament, Tom, then Isaiah begins the prophets section in the final third of your first testament. He takes such a place because of both weight and primacy, message-wise and scroll-wise. Isaiah's got a whopping 66 chapters of lecture recorded, compared to Jeremiah's 52, Ezekiel's 28, and the 12 minor prophets, which include Amos and Hosea, as we've already discussed, who all have 12 or under. Obadiah's got himself just one little old chapter in there, making his the first choice of whole book memorizers. For the three of you that noticed, Daniel's book is not in the prophets category in the Tanakh, the Hebrew owner's manual, which rather puts him in the writings category with Psalms and Proverbs. The book of Isaiah is the most powerful of all the owner's manual, and thus of all that has ever been or shall ever be written. Let that sentence move you to set aside this Saturday morning to read it all in one sitting. His name means Yahweh is salvation. His is a grand work, with the first 60% warning of judgment and the latter 40% promising comfort and hope. It's currently popular to assign another author to the latter, and though we'll not spend the time to argue over such a detail by comparing similar phrasing on either side and so on, you may rest in certain faith that the book of Isaiah you have in your hands is exactly the text I want you to have, whether it have one, two, or twenty contributors. Isaiah handily summarizes his message in a compact five-chapter introduction. Do you really need me to say it would be good to read those now before going on? His introduction sets out his primary themes, just like an overture. He and we weave them together masterfully, leaving no relevant metaphor unexplored, starting with what we've all along been leaning on most. Israel is my child my beloved, now rebellious child that has spurned its father's compassionate wisdom and has stubbornly insisted on turning its back on me in favor of a degenerating life of corruption and sin. My children are now such brats that they lack the common sense of the ox and donkey, who at least know who their master is and that their master is the one who puts food in their stomachs. Not so, my children. They have become proud and haughty, reliant on any candidate available for their trust that is not me, themselves, military strength, commerce, or, worst of all, they trust in idols as their gods, idols they have made for themselves with their own hands. In that vein, Isaiah echoes Hosea's parabolic life with Gomer, as he levels the label of promiscuous infidelity at Jerusalem. That's Isaiah 1.21. In addition to all this sin of theological kind is their ethical breakdown. Just as Amos has condemned the North for their failure to care for orphans and widows, and all the poor they represent, Isaiah takes Judah to task for ignoring and exploiting them and for allowing bribes to win the way for the wealthy at the cost of the fatherless and the widow. All this in chapter 1 of Isaiah. 
Isaiah takes another page from Amos in piling up woes against Judah, each of them building towards a mighty, therefore, of consequential foreign invasion. That's in Isaiah 5, 8 to 26. Isaiah speaks and writes of the day to come, my day, the day of Yahweh, of which Amos also warned, that the waywardness of my children now requires of me, for both their own eventual good and that of all humanity, the day when justice and judgment must be rendered and the requirements of our covenant with our children finally fulfilled, though we have stalled for as long as divinely possible. Even now, as we and Isaiah warn of this coming day, we call our children to turn aside from evil and be forgiven, promising that, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. And all the metaphor's outcomes turn on that wee two-letter word, if. If they return, they are cleansed spotless. If they rebel, their fate is the sword in which they have trusted instead of me. And that sword brings not victory, but death and exile. All is not gloom and doom, though, certainly not. There is yet time for hope and change, which we will have to discuss next time. In the meantime, keep walking on the way, and all your ifs will result in the best of thens. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.